brothers and sisters, and turn together in Holy Scripture to the Psalms. I'd like us to, this afternoon, spend time with Psalm 4, which will serve as both the reading as well as the text. Psalm 4, page 569 of your pew Bibles. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your, on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. After the sermon this afternoon, the bulletin and the board say we will sing hymn four. The intention was rather that would be singing the psalm we're about to consider, Psalm four. I'm wondering if our brother is okay with that. So after the after the sermon, let's sing together Psalm four, the very text for this afternoon's sermon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's likely not an overstatement to say that most, if not all of us, have experienced some degree of distress as a result of forgetfulness. And here I'm thinking specifically of forgetting parts of God's Word. I'm thinking of the distress that you can experience when, say, you're very aware of your own depravity, but forgetful of God's declaration of his undying love for you. Maybe life has become burdensome. Maybe you've recently lost a job or received a pay cut or that type of thing. Maybe you are experiencing more than your share of hardships in family life, tension in marriage, strife in the family, straying from the Lord and from his church. Perhaps you've shed a lot of tears lately because you've sharply experienced the brokenness of this life. The thought can and does arise, does God really love me if in this life all I do have to speak about is sadness, tension, hurt? Trouble does make us doubt. It makes us forget at times the Lord's declaration of his love for us, especially because we do know who we are, small, finite, 
and depraved. So yes, trouble should be my lot in life. I don't really deserve any better. Well, sometimes our thinking about God needs correction. Sometimes we need to see that, yes, God does send us trouble, but it is, so to speak, valuable trouble. This is where Psalm 4 becomes so helpful. This afternoon, the Holy Spirit would bolster our confidence that, yes, God really does love his people, depraved though we may be. It's a confidence that the author of the psalm, King David, had. David knew that the Lord had set him apart for his purposes. He didn't doubt it. He accepted it. David's confidence in this psalm is instructive for us. God, our righteous and holy God, reaches down from heaven to show us his favor. God, our righteous and holy God, hears the prayers of his people in their trouble, and he works in his way to increase their faith. So I proclaim this word of the Lord to you. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. We find this in David's confidence, David's counsel, and then in third place, David's confession. So first, David's confidence. It is quite obvious from reading through this psalm that its author is in peril. Psalm 4 is another of the psalms of lament. Some have pointed out that Psalm 4 could be paired perhaps with Psalm 3, which seems to be a morning prayer, while our text appears to be an evening prayer. We should note that the Psalms of Lament are very numerous in the Psalter. So many Psalms begin the way that Psalm 4 does. It's quite encouraging actually to see that as you leaf through the Psalter. Psalms are not presenting to us some sort of pie-in-the-sky picture of the Christian life. Well, they often start out with a sense of feeling forgotten, abandoned by the Lord. Some lament about sickness. There is often frustration that you find. There are enemies who are hounding the psalmists, misjudging them, humiliating them, persecuting them. We often find then that the psalmist starts out with this feeling of being overwhelmed. Now we are not entirely sure of the historical background of Psalm 4. As we already said, some have paired it with Psalm 3. There seems to be, there is similar terminology and there's a similar flavor between the two. So it's quite possible that the historical background is similar. David wrote Psalm 3 after he had fled from Absalom, from Jerusalem, when his son Absalom took the throne. That's in 2 Samuel 15 through 18. Psalm 4 may very well have been written during that time. King David is very likely still in exile. He's still a fugitive. He's on the run. And that already for us, I hope, is striking. David is the one appointed by God to establish peace and security in the land. 
He's God's appointed representative, ordained to reflect God's justice and mercy to his people. But this one is not receiving the respect and support that his office asks for. He's bearing the brunt of his people's uprising. He is experiencing injustice, opposition. And he recognizes this as a crisis situation. Well, in this intense crisis, David again turns to his God for help. The striking thing, however, is that David's, in David's crisis, we don't really detect hopelessness. We don't read of despair. Instead, we actually find David quite calm. Why is that? Well, the reason for his calm approach to his God is that David knows a thing or two about his God. We see this in some of David's vocabulary in verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. God of my righteousness, David says. Indeed, David knows God's character. In other words, David is calling him the God who will show me to be in the right, even though I am being misjudged and, and dishonored. David has high confidence that God has bound himself, God has committed himself to the godly. So when the godly endure uprising, when their innocence is attacked by false accusations, they can appeal to the God of their righteousness to assess the situation and vindicate their right. David calls upon God to be witness to his own conduct and put him in the right. The psalmist puts God's character first and foremost in his prayer. Now imagine that you've been falsely accused. You've been misjudged. And you know you've not done it. But others are all over this, building up a case against you. You're being brought to court, and so you have to hire a lawyer to defend your innocence. You are looking for justice, in other words. Well, if you can put yourself in that kind of situation where you have to defend yourself, especially in a case where you're on trial for your faith, Psalm 4 is the place to go for strength. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. O God, who in the face of all the slanders from my enemies can vindicate me, exonerate me, defend my right. But with this title, O God of my righteousness, David honors his God. His desire, congregation, is that his cause would be recognized as right. David is appealing, you see, to God's goodness, which is a good way to start your prayers. Whenever you ask anything from your God, you begin by seeking him according to his goodness. Well, as we move along in this first verse, we see that David's confidence is rooted in more than the fact that God is 
the God of his right. His confidence is also based in the fact that he has experienced God's help in the past. You have given me relief when I was in distress. David is recalling that God has already poured out his benefits upon his servant. And it's this recollection of God's past grace that gives David strength and confidence for the time to come. The word for distress carries the idea of being squeezed into a tight place. David, who is currently in a tight spot, recalls those other times in his life when his God gave him relief, where he made space for David. David is saying, when I was hemmed into a tight spot, you made space for me. God opened up a way of escape for him when he was buffeted on all sides, besieged on all fronts. How often did that happen to David? Well, just think of his relationship with Saul. But David has learned in this and other experiences that God makes space for his people whom he has set apart. How often does this vocabulary not fit in with our lives? We can find ourselves in a tight spot, besieged by the forces of sin and evil. It can become suffocating as we look out, look for a way out from Satan's attack. And yet while this distress may overpower us, it can't overpower God. So how do you respond to being in a tight spot? As David did, consider your Lord. Consider that he has set apart the godly for himself. And in that relationship, he is the God who gives space. Recall that. This is the godly way of working through your pressure. Know who your God is. For with that understanding, that mindset, you can expect God to grant you relief. You can expect God's grace as David did. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David pleads for God's grace because he is in a helpless condition. And yet his situation of desperation does not leave him in despair. He has total confidence that the Lord will hear him because of who the Lord is and how the Lord works, how he has worked in covenant history in David's life. In this first verse of David's prayer, brothers and sisters, he declares the character of his God, God of my righteousness. He remembers God's tender mercies, giving David relief when he was in distress, and then in his confidence, he pleads for God to show himself in David's life. Be gracious to me. Yes, David homes in on God's goodness, and then he pleads for God's grace. See that David here in prayer is worshiping. Biblical prayer meditates on God. 
David's prayer is full of confident worship of his God who has set apart the godly for himself. We've seen this in verse 1, and we see it even further in verses 2 through 5, where David speaks words of counsel for those who opposed him. That's our second point, David's counsel. Well, in these verses, 2 through 5, David turns from, you might say, speaking to the Lord to addressing others, those who have given him a lot of trouble in recent days. And as it turns out, he, David tells his enemies here that they are playing dirty. They're being dishonest. They're mud-slinging. They were bringing empty charges against David. They were turning David's glory, his status, his office into shame, as he says at the beginning of verse 2. They're slandering the king's reputation. And here in our text, then, he denounces them for it. He confronts them in their attitudes. Oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words, seek after lies? So the honor of the Lord's anointed being attacked. We cannot, of course, help here but think of also our Savior. He had his share of enemies, of course, during his earthly ministry. Instead of praising, honoring him for his preaching and for his miracles of healing and of raising the dead and casting out demons, they smeared his ministry. They talked bad about him. They spread lies about him. They said he's a glutton and a drunkard because he hangs out with tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. Others said he has an evil spirit. Still others called him a blasphemer because he thinks he's God. What defense does the godly have in response to false, bogus charges? It's a mighty defense. Here's where we come in our text to that powerful expression of our theme. Verse 3, David prays, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Well, who is this godly one? David is referring here to himself as king. The Hebrew word David uses here is chasid. If you're a history buff, you may know that during the time of the Lord Jesus, there was a group of Orthodox rabbis known as the Hasidim. And that's where the Hasidic Jews of today find their origin. And so a Hasid is a pious Jew. And it's related to another Hebrew word which is at the heart of the Old Testament, which is the word chesed, which stands for God's covenant, unfailing, steadfast compassion and love. And so a Hasid is one who has received the Lord's chesed, his covenant unfailing love. He's received it by faith. He's heard God's promises and embraced them. He's the opposite of those who love vain words and seek after lies. 
those whose life is one big contradiction between who they are in public and in private. They're not godly, but are godless. David's defense in response to the false charges then is this. He knows that he, as Hasid, has received the Lord's unfailing covenant love, and he, as the Lord's anointed, is striving to respond in love to the Lord, loving the Lord back. And this Lord has set apart this godly one for himself, not because he's perfect. Godly doesn't mean that, far from it. David knew himself a sinner, and he wrote Psalms to prove it. The godly are those loved by God who respond by loving him back, though it be imperfectly. These, David says, these the Lord has set apart for himself. David knows that he stands under the protection of the Lord. That's his defense against the lies and the slander of the enemy. And it's ours as well. When people try to smear the Lord or the church or indeed the Lord's people or Christianity, we may respond with this exhortation, you might say, this counsel to the world. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. He protects them during danger and attack. He's made a distinction, the Lord, between his people and his enemies. And that started at our baptism. That's where we came under the special protection of the Lord, at his initiative. That's where God proclaimed his love for us. Again, we see that in the life of our Savior. At the beginning of his public ministry, his heavenly Father set him apart through baptism. God said to him, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Oh, that sounds an awful lot like Psalm 4, verse 3, doesn't it? You are my Son, whom I love. You are my godly one. I have set you apart for myself and our Savior could return to that reality throughout his ministry he was constantly in crisis mode often in a tight spot his honor was constantly turned into shame and all those accusations were continually thrown at him but he could recall the promise his father made to him at his baptism that's for us too we see in Psalm 4 that the weapon of the righteous one who becomes an object of malicious slander is to remember how God regards him in Christ. Today, Christians will also have times when they have to deal with slander that puts them down and then even their fellow church members doubt that God will show them some good. Psalm 4 encourages believers in crisis to continue to trust that the Lord has set apart, claimed the godly for himself. And therefore the godly has access to him. Verse 3b, how, pardon me, 
The Lord hears when I call to him. Marvelous. The godly can bring it all before God and with David can know that God, the God of their baptism, will hear. David has further counsel to pass on in verses 4 and 5. He's still speaking to his enemies, to those who oppose him. And now he exhorts them to repentance. Be angry and do not sin. More literally, it says, tremble and do not sin. Trembling. That word carries the sense of shaking in fearful awe. Footnote here has, be agitated. I think that the King James Version actually captures the meaning the best when it says, stand in awe and sin not. It's a very intense picture here. David is rousing his enemies, stirring them up from their inner peace. He calls Absalom and his company to repent before the Lord in trembling awe because of their sin of falsehood and conspiring against the psalmist, the godly one, in this case, the king. He follows that by saying, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. That's further helpful instruction for those conspiring against the psalmist. Don't sin. Reflect on yourself and whatever reckless behavior you've been involved in. Search your hearts and be silent. So, trembling and silence. These motivate, encourage reflection and are also the result of reflection, trembling and silence. It's the response of repentance. And verse 5 adds to that, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. This is David further calling his enemies to repentance. It is as if he's calling out to Absalom and his cohorts, go to the temple, go to the priests, offer right sacrifices, seek atonement for your sin, repent, become right with the Lord. Trust not in your own army, your own popularity, your own clever strategies, but in the Lord. David is appealing to them for a change of their heart. That's the only way the wrath of God is going to be turned aside from them. It is remarkable, isn't it, that the psalmist does not ask for God's wrath to be poured out upon his enemies. Rather, he keeps calling them to repent. David was a good king, as well as a loving shepherd. He compels the unrepentant to turn from his sins, to be reconciled, restored to God through the sacrifice of atonement, and to trust in the Lord. David is talking here again to his own brethren. So his words are for 
the church first and foremost. There's something here for us as well. When your neighbor, whoever that might be, is slandering the name of Christ by word or deed, do you have the boldness to speak out and call him to repentance and to serve God in a reverent way? That could be your unbelieving neighbor. It could also be a fellow saint who is not offering the right sacrifices of repentance to the Lord. We are to confront and rebuke with humility, yet with boldness. Jesus Christ deserves honor and glory. So we see in the last place how the Lord's setting apart of the godly for himself comes out in David's confession. We find in these verses no longer deliberate enemies of the king, but doubters, discouraged by their, their current circumstances. David contrasts their reaction to his that he uttered in verse 1. His own heart was burning for the Lord. He reflected on who his God was, the God of his right, the God who gives relief, He had a desire for God to show himself once again. But these many of verse 6 are in distress, and they don't share his burning desire. They wonder, who will show us some good? That good seems to refer to the good things of the good life. Good things that perish, like that grain and wine mentioned in verse 7. David does not set his heart's desire on these things. He sets no values, no permanent value on the perishable good things. Instead, what he does say to those asking those kinds of questions is this. He prays some words very familiar to us. He takes the part of the blessing that the priests proclaimed over Israel at the end of the worship services the blessing we still receive today. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. David takes these very words and he turns them into a prayer. Lift the light of your face upon us, O Lord. David actually believes that blessing, you see. David has heard it all his life at the climax of the sacrificial liturgy in the tabernacle. For David, uh, it's not merely a sign that the worship service is at its close. It's not merely some biblical way of saying the end. No, it is so much more than that. So what David is reminding us of is that sometimes what you need in order to move forward is found right in the worship service. What's so familiar to you? That takes you through all the challenges and crises in life. That blessing which you have heard all your life is what you need. It's what David prays for as well. David is content with the favor of God alone. It's his deepest longing. And it illustrates to us what 
our deepest longing should be. The godly whom the Lord has set apart are to seek the light of his face, the manifestation, the shining of his favor and love. That longing is supposed to be the number one in your life above all other longings you may have. Is it? As you are busy in your daily affairs, wherever those may be, whether it's at school or at the office or on the job site or in the home, in the classroom, is the favor and the love of God, your God, shining upon you? Is that your deepest longing? Does it mean the world to you? Does the favor and love of God shining upon you mean more to you than the thing that you hold most dearly in this life, the thing for which you are most thankful in this life? Your spouse, your parents, your children, your possessions. Pray with David, Lord, lift up the light of your face upon us. For the truth is, that light of the Lord's face shining upon the godly, that produces true joy. David says in verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. David has a gladness, a joy that trouble cannot destroy. His longing for God is so strong that having received the wealth of God's favor, he doesn't envy the wealth of others. While they lament and gripe, he prays, you have put joy in my heart. David had more satisfaction in seeing the countenance of God beaming upon him than if he had garners overflowing with grain and cellars bubbling over with new wine. A good relationship with the Lord provides the psalmist with more joy than those who seek their happiness in material goods. Can you say the same, brothers and sisters? Can you say it truly, that you find more satisfaction in the wealth of God's favor than in your material circumstances who or what has your affection more who or what gives you the most joy god-given and god-directed joy is vastly more important and more fulfilling than all the food and the wealth that the world can give you David closes off this psalm by confessing that he also enjoys deep peace. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The enemies of the king, we read in verse 3, diligently ran after worthlessness and falsehood in order to frustrate the king. Others chased after prosperity, wondered where it had all gone. David He's a fugitive. 
He's not worried about the outcome. He simply committed his way to the Lord as he went to sleep. He experienced peace, the peace that comes as a great blessing from God. Yes, David's gone in this psalm from trouble to peace. The way David gets from trouble to peace is through prayer, delighting in his God. It is quite possible that you have come to church today with a lot of struggles on your mind. And maybe you've been thinking, have been wrestling with, sleeping in peace. Remember the Psalms. From trouble to peace, through prayer. David's confidence in the Lord alone is the reason for his peaceful sleep. But really, beloved, how can this all be? How can David, David, of all people, have this confidence? David, the adulterer, the murderer, whose sins ultimately led to him being on the run from Absalom. You might say led to the writing of Psalm 3, probably Psalm 4. That's all in his not-so-distant past as he writes this psalm. How can David be considered a godly one after everything he'd done? He was looking ahead by faith to the one God had promised to send to the coming king who would be the godly one, the Hasid. In this godly one, the light of the Father's face would shine out into this dark world. Jesus did not come to experience abundant grain or wine himself, even though he did multiply bread to feed others and change water into the best of wine. During Christ's ministry, he didn't even have a bed of his own on which to lie down and sleep. He was not surrounded by followers who loved him. Instead of honoring him as the godly one, the glorious one, people spat on him, beat him, and put him to shame on the cross. Oh, men, oh, world, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? Jesus knew what it was to be surrounded by many enemies, to feel deep suffering and pain, and to feel the deepest shame at the cross, which actually was the place of the greatest honor of all, the place where our righteous God vindicated sinners by establishing a new righteousness for all those who are in Christ, by setting apart his godly one to experience his wrath against sin, God made it possible for us now to know and to experience the light of his face. At the cross, God offered the perfect sacrifice so that we might lie down and sleep in peace and dwell in safety, a safety that no trial, no temptation, no sin of ours can touch. At the cross, 
we re can receive relief from the greatest distress of all, the distress of our sin. Now even former adulterers and murderers like David can come into God's holy presence and fellowship, washed by Christ's blood and enabled to sing his praises. And if they can, so can we. As we are joined to Christ by faith, we too can be counted, are counted among the godly. We too, broken as we are, can be accepted as God's beloved children and feel the warm light of his radiant smile upon us for the sake of his Son. Psalm 4 has been used by believers throughout the ages as an evening prayer or song. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. If you cannot say this confession when your day is done, follow the example of the psalmists. Bend your knee and lay hold by faith the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, the peace that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. He will care for you. He does protect you. Seek your Father's face as the source of your true joy. No matter your distress, you will dwell securely in your Father's arms forever. If you have God, you have everything you need for life and for death. And that's reason for unending thanksgiving. Amen.